This is a tale of intrigue. It begins with a mistake that leads to a bonanza that provokes a heist that compels an international criminal investigation. Along the way, it's peopled by characters so colorful they might have popped from a page of comic strips. The story ends happily, not in London or New York or Shanghai or other metropolises that one might associate with high-end crime. No, it ends in Center County. This is Dead Center, a podcast about Center County history. I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. For this inaugural episode of Dead Center, let's journey back almost 100 years to May of 1918. The United States Post Office Department was beginning its first scheduled airmail service. The plane that would carry the mail was a Curtis JN-4. The JN designation gave the craft its nickname, the Jenny. Already it had been widely used in the Great War that the United States had entered the previous year. The Jenny was mostly used to train Army pilots, but it could be readily modified to carry equipment or for use as the first air ambulance. So it was the logical choice to carry the U.S. mail. To commemorate the occasion, the post office commissioned a new stamp, a breathtakingly exorbitant 24-cent airmail stamp. It was patriotically printed in red and blue and featured the Jenny biplane. That's when the mistake occurred. In 1918, to print a stamp in two colors, you had to send it through the printing press twice. You didn't have multicolor printers. That's Ken Martin. He's the chief operating officer for the American Philatelic Society, which is headquartered in the restored match factory in Belfont. It's a red and blue stamp, and um, the plane is one plate and the frame of the stamp the other. One of the sheets got turned around when it was inserted into the press the second time, so it appears that the plane is flying upside down. It's easy to see how it could happen. Workers at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing were on a tight schedule. It was wartime. They were working day and night to print not just the usual bills and stamps, but liberty bonds and other war-related items. Now they were under pressure to produce the commemorative stamps and to have them in post offices before the historic May 15th flight. Each sheet had to be hand-fed into the press, then removed while the second plate was inserted, then hand-fed a second time before going through the perforator. That was the machine that punched in the little holes that made the stamps easy to separate. It was such a simple mistake to make that it actually happened nine times. Eight of the faulty sheets were discovered and destroyed at the Bureau of Engraving. One was not. It's called an inverted Jenny because it showed a Curtis Jenny biplane. Um, And one sheet was purchased and, um, you know, there's a story behind the whole thing following that. What followed is that the single sheet of 100 inverted jennies made its way to a Washington, D.C. post office on May 14th. And so did William Roby. Roby worked for a brokerage firm, but he was also a stamp collector. He wanted to add the new airmail stamp to his collection. He had actually gone to the post office earlier in the morning to purchase a sheet. He didn't like the centering, the the margins around the stamps. They weren't well centered between the perforations. And he asked the the post office if they were going to get any more. They said they were expecting additional delivery. I think at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 
He came back in the afternoon and he was stunned at what he saw. Roby knew enough about stamp collecting to know that he had just hit the jackpot 100 times. When the, the postal workers figured out that he had something that was an error, they tried to, well, you have to return it to us, you know. But he held fast, and uh, it turned out to be a nice investment. He paid $24 for the 124-cent stamps and sold it the next week uh, for $15,000 to Eugene Klein, a Philadelphia stamp dealer. You know, 1918, that's probably like a million dollars today or something like that. Eugene Klein was a major collector who had served as the president of the American Philatelic Society. He was also a dealer. With a pencil, Klein lightly numbered the back of each stamp so that its position on the sheet would be known when the stamps were inevitably separated. Then, just days after buying the stamps from Roby, he sold the entire sheet of inverted jennies. I think part of the, the romance is also who purchased them next. Colonel Edward Howard Robinson Green, Ned for short. He went by the title of Colonel E.H.R. Green. The colonel was, you know, his self-appointed colonel or whatever. But he was the son of Hetty Green, who was known as the Witch of Wall Street. Um, she was the wealthiest woman in the United States, uh, supposedly approximately a billionaire at that point in time. Um, but she was uh, known for being, well, she was so cheap that she wouldn't take her son to the doctor uh, when he developed an infection in his leg, and he actually lost a leg to gangrene because his mother, who was a billionaire, wouldn't pay for him to see a doctor. How stingy was Hetty Green? Well, the Guinness Book of World Records has an entry on her titled, Miserly First Lady Tycoon. It includes this passage. She was often criticized for her dowdy appearance and even scrimped on laundry. When Green took her skirts to the cleaners, she insisted that they'd just wash the hems, since they were the only part that got dirty. When her son Ned heard his knee jumping onto a sled, Green allegedly dressed them both up in ragged clothing and took him to the free clinic. When Ned was 25 years old, Hetty sent him to Texas to manage a railroad she had acquired in a foreclosure. When she died in 1916, he and his sister inherited their mother's vast fortune. But he did not inherit her penny-pinching tendencies. He was sort of the exact opposite, and he, he spent it quite freely, not only on those stamps, but on, on other things. He would be driven around in a limousine in New York City, and shopkeepers would bring stuff out to him to the limousine, because it was hard for him to walk with a prosthetic, and he'd spend fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 at a shot commonly, so... He had no problem using up the fortune that his mom had amassed. Colonel Green had moved back to New York after his mother's death. Unlike the shabby Brooklyn and Hoboken apartments that Hetty had occupied, the colonel rented a 16-room suite in the Waldorf Astoria, where he lived while his 60-room mansion was being built and his 215-foot yacht was being lengthened. He lavished his longtime companion Mabel with all the jewels she wanted, and maybe some she didn't, like the diamond-studded chastity belt. The colonel also indulged his own passion for collecting. By the time he bought the inverted jennies, his stamp collection was said to be the second most valuable in the world. The only person with a better collection? England's King George V. In Colonel Green's hands, the sheet of inverted jennies was broken up and sold off to individual buyers. He made a tidy sum. 
it's possible that when Green first made them available for sale, that it would have been like 200 if perforated probably on all four sides, and 175 if it was on the if it was on the edge of the sheet, which wouldn't have had perforation. Stamp collectors generally prefer a stamp that's perforated on all four sides as opposed to one that was on the edge of a sheet and didn't have the perforations. This is where the story gets murky. Green kept several blocks of stamps for himself. Some were sold to private collections or dealers. One was enclosed in a gold-rimmed locket which the colonel gave to Mabel, who by now was his wife. Another was donated to the Red Cross, which auctioned it off in a fundraiser. Hmm, what else? Oh, yeah. One was sucked up by a vacuum cleaner, by his maid. As the 100 stamps became scarcer and harder to trace, their value increased, as they were bought and sold by third owners, fourth owners, and so on. In 1929, a single inverted jenny sold for $2,300. And then the stock market crashed. In 1938, when the market for collectibles was beginning to recover, a rare stamp dealer in Philadelphia tried to account for all 100 jennies. He tracked down 37 stamps. Of most importance to our story is the block of four stamps owned by Mrs. Ethel Stewart, given to her by her first husband, Bert Stewart. Ethel was born into wealth and married into more wealth. Her father was a journalist from the Harrisburg area. Now, journalism is not typically a career path to riches. I can personally attest to that. But Ethel's dad, Charles Bergstresser, had teamed up with two other reporters, Edward Jones and Charles Dow. Bergstresser was the silent partner in the Dow Jones Company, publisher of the Wall Street Journal. So Ethel grew up as a New York socialite. When her first husband died, he left her the fortune he had made, ironically, in the rubber stamp business. Ironic, of course, because Ethel's passion was not for the rubber variety, but for the rarest of rare stamps. In fact, she had told her friends that if she ever remarried, her second husband would simply have to share her love of stamp collecting. Nowadays, that could get you left swiped on Tinder. But Walter McCoy turned out to be the man of Ethel's dreams. He was a retired manufacturer, active in philatelic clubs, and editor of a philatelic magazine. They married, and presumably they both enjoyed her prized possession, the block of Jenny Inverts. Remember how Eugene Klein had lightly numbered the backs of the stamps? Well, Ethel McCoy owned numbers 65, 66, 75, and 76. On the full page, configured as 10 stamps across and 10 down, these jennies would have been located just slightly below dead center. And remember how Ken Martin told us that collectors prefer all four sides to be perforated rather than straight-edged? Well, all four sides of all four of these stamps were perforated. These were trophy stamps. Ethel McCoy was a patron of the arts a philanthropist, and a generous exhibitor of her collections. In September of 1955, the American Philatelic Society asked her to loan the stamps for the annual convention that was being held in Norfolk, Virginia. She agreed. The block of stamps was valued at more than $18,000, so it spent the night before the convention in a bank vault. The next day, the stamps were taken to the exhibit site, 
a ballroom at the Monticello Hotel that was protected by armed guards. The post office department also had stamps on display, but the inverted Jennies stole the show. And then someone stole them. It happened on the third day of the exhibit. Three local postal employees had gone to see the stamps in the morning. They had wandered among the various displays where dealers were chatting and setting up shop for the day. Then they came to the spot where they had seen the stamps mounted on a display board the night before. A piece of mounting material was hanging from an empty display board. The McCoy stamps were gone, and nobody. Not the armed guards, not the patrons, not the other dealers. Nobody seemed to have a clue to their whereabouts. McCoy was said to have felt that the crime was a kidnapping more than a theft. Except that nobody ever called with a ransom demand. Instead, she received a $15,000 settlement from the company that insured the stamps. Fast forward now to 1977. The head of the New York Philatelic Foundation had been asked to authenticate a stamp. It was an inverted Jenny, positioned 75 from the stolen McCoy block. The foundation turned it over to the FBI, who traced it back to a longtime stamp collector named Louis Castelli. Castelli had a long story of how he had acquired the stamp through trades and purchases, but he had no documents to prove his story, and everyone who could verify it was now dead. Ethel McCoy was 85 years old and in failing health. She just didn't have it in her to get involved in a criminal investigation. Enter James DeVos the president of the American Philatelic Research Library. He offered to fight the battle she was too tired to wage. So she signed over her rights to the stamps to the American Philatelic Research Library, which at that time was located in State College. A custody battle for the stamp played out for two more years. Eventually, Castelli agreed not to challenge DeVos's claim to the stamp, and no charges were filed against Castelli. DeVos then took possession of the inverted Jenny and auctioned it for $115,000. The proceeds were designated to support the library. DeVos offered to reimburse the insurance company, the one that had paid $15,000 to McCoy in 1955. But Ethel McCoy couldn't locate the policy or remember the name of the insurance company. To this day, nobody has ever stepped forward to reclaim the settlement. McCoy died in 1980, one year before the second stolen Jenny turned up. Here's what happened. One day, DeVos got a phone call from a philatelic specialist. A Chicago businessman wanted to sell part of his stamp collection to take a tax deduction. The collection included an inverted Jenny. DeVos arranged to meet with the businessman, Marcel Lutwak. At New York's Plaza Hotel, Lutwak gave DeVos the stamp. After the men parted, DeVos examined it closely and determined that it was, you guessed it, a stolen Jenny. Number 65. He immediately took it to the post office, placed it in a registered envelope, and mailed it to his state college home. There was a stamp dealer's convention in New York City that weekend, and DeVos ran into an old friend there who he confided in. His friend, James Beale, 
was dismayed that DeVos had simply accepted the stamp, because technically it was stolen property. DeVos replied that having found the long-missing stamp, he was not about to give up possession. And besides, he argued, the research library was the rightful owner, according to Ethel McCoy's will. His friend Beale was not convinced. He contacted the FBI. Back in State College, DeVos picked up his registered mail from the post office. In the presence of a lawyer and other witnesses, he opened it, making a photocopy of the registered envelope. Next, he photographed the stamp, conducted a careful examination, and wrote a report detailing the stamp's condition and likely provenance. He also took out a $150,000 insurance policy on the stamp. Then he waited for the FBI to call. About two weeks later, DeVos sat down to lunch at the Gold Eagle Inn in Brookville. The inn itself is a budget motel just off Route 80, but the adjoining restaurant is a Brookville institution. It's a special occasion restaurant, with rustic decor and a creative menu, the kind of menu that, on Groundhog's Day weekend, features Groundhog's Brew. But DeVos wasn't there for the food or brew. He was there because Brookville was about the halfway point between State College and Cleveland. James Beal was meeting him there and bringing an Ohio-based agent who specialized in stamp thefts. By all accounts, a heated discussion took place. DeVos argued that his obligation was to secure the stamp and then worry about whether a crime had occurred. Plus, he couldn't afford another long custody battle like the one he had just fought. Beale insisted that the crime should be investigated, and then DeVos could claim his stamp. With some persuasion from the FBI agent, and the FBI presumably can be very persuasive, a reluctant DeVos turned over the inverted Jenny. An investigation was launched. Lutwak was interrogated, but the Chicago businessman was found to be blameless, perhaps himself a victim of a long-ago swindler who he could no longer remember. And that report that DeVos had written? Well, it convinced the FBI that the stamp was indeed the real McCoy. Before long, the stamp returned to the American Philatelic Society. And then there were only two missing stamps. At the American Philatelic Society in Belfont, there's a room named Sunman Hall. It was endowed by Don Sunman. Again, here's Ken Martin. Don Sunman is the owner of Mystic Stamp Company. It's the largest retail stamp dealer in the United States. They have, I think, over 100 employees, um, and they are located um, near Syracuse, New York. Um, Actually, uh, Mr. Sunman donated $200,000 in name of his father, and the the room beneath where we are talking right now is named Sunman Hall in, in his honor and memory. Don provided something else as well. Two $50,000 rewards, one for each of the missing inverted Jennies. But the rewards had an end date. They were due to expire on June 4, 2016. Now, there are enough inverted Jennies circulating that eyebrows don't necessarily raise when one is bought or sold. So nobody outside the stamp-collecting world noticed last April when an inverted Jenny came up for sale at Spink. That's an auction house that specializes in rare stamps, coins, and banknotes. Spink has been in business since the mid-17th century, and it has offices in places where you might expect luxury goods to be traded. London, Singapore, 
China, Switzerland, and the U.S. The seller of this jenny was a young man in Ireland who said he had inherited the stamp. Um, the grandfather uh, who willed it to the grandson um, was living in Ireland. So uh, this one had traveled outside of the United States. Uh, the grandson was, uh, I believe, attending college in the U.S. and had it with him in the U.S. and, you know, took it to the New York office of Spink um, where they consigned it, not at that point realizing it was one of the stolen copies. Spink submitted the stamp to the Philatelic Foundation, where it was determined that it was number 76 on the sheet of 100 stamps. It's a day Ken Martin won't soon forget. So that was obviously great news, um, but, you know, we, we held off celebrating a little bit because they're, you know, want to make sure this is the case, you know, figure out all the facts, and then figure out a plan to um, get it back involving the, the FBI and so forth so that you have clear title to it. As it turned out, the American Philatelic Society would not have to wait long. Thursday afternoon... June 2nd, I believe. Amid great media fanfare, a ceremony took place on that day at the Jacob Javits Center in New York City. As cameras flashed and cell phones flicked, federal law enforcement officials handed over the stamp to the American Philatelic Society. Later that month, the stamp was displayed in Belfont. The grandson received the $50,000 in reward money, just two days before it would have expired. Donald Sunman decided to extend the expiration date for the second reward, in hopes that number 66, the last of Ethel McCoy's missing stamps, will surface and come home to Belfont. Meanwhile, number 76 may not be around for long. Ken expects it to be auctioned because, well, one inverted Jenny is enough, and the research library can use the money. This is your chance, stamp collectors. If you have the money, it's not hard to get an inverted Jenny. Um, probably 10 of them go on the market a year or something. So, you know, you have a quarter million dollars. It's pretty easy to get one. Uh, <laughs> quarter million of disposable income. <laughs> the research library, by the way, has tens of thousands of books, including many that discuss the inverted Jennies. The one that was most valuable to me in putting together today's episode is titled Jenny by George Amick. You might do a double take when you look at this book because the title on the cover, like the subject, is inverted. Today's theme music is titled Coffee Shop and was composed by David Zestze. Also, Ghost Dance, which was composed by Kevin McLeod. They're licensed by Creative Commons. That's it for today, but I'm not done talking with Ken Martin. Um, we thought that was a terrible waste of the resource and basically got uh, a loan from the Smithsonian's Museum of American History um, so we could have it here. Join me next time for a look at a Smithsonian treasure that is no longer on the mall in Washington, D.C. It's right here, dead center. For more about Center County history, visit our website, centerhistory.org. To give feedback on today's program or to subscribe to future podcasts, visit deadcenterpa.org.